So our theme is carrying on the words of the preacher, uh, making the most of life and probably more specifically tonight, making the most of time. And it's one of the most probably famous and well-known parts of the scripture. You know, sometimes we struggle with the basic questions of life, don't we? Like, who am I? Uh, What is my identity? Do I matter in life? Like, am I important? What is my importance? What is the purpose of my life? What is my life about? Can I ever be satisfied? Why does life seem unfair or why is it so challenging? And I think especially at this time, there's a sense of, uh, of fear and it can be a sense of hopelessness, especially for, you know, the younger people um, about the future of the world and the direction um, for all your labour and all your effort that you've put in and it seems to be quite despairing. And it's amazing that um, God, through his wisdom, uh, used Solomon to put uh, thoughts down which are about these big questions. God's not afraid of us asking the hard questions. Even of people of great faith like Solomon struggled with these issues and they tried to find out what life was all about. And that's why this book's in Scripture. In fact, God really wants us to ask these kind of questions and to search out the matter for ourselves. He's given us free will and the capacity to wrestle with these questions. And this is what Solomon's done for us. This was Solomon's question, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. What profit or what benefit has anyone for all their labour, for all their life, which he taketh under the sun? What is the benefit, what is the profit of life? And just a quick summary and background, I'm sure you've, you've studied this and looked at it before, but just for my own purposes of context of chapter 3, we know that Solomon was the writer and the preacher, verse 12 to 16 of chapter 1, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven this sore travail that God has given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. So Solomon uh, was given the wisdom from God, and he had every opportunity, every wisdom and resource to explore the questions of life about Would he get any satisfaction from the fundamental things of life? Um, And he writes about his conclusions about the futility and the emptiness of life under the sun. And I'm sure you've talked about that phrase. He deals with the great conflict between his desire for fulfilment and purpose and his actual experience of pursuing these things and discovering a life where nothing is fulfilled. So Ecclesiastes is really about uh, the meaninglessness of life when we put ourselves on centre stage 
and we put God on the sideline. It's, ex- it's exploring um, what life is like without a practical faith and understanding of God's hand in our life. And that's really important. There's been so many people that I've spoken to recently, obviously talking about Ecclesiastes, who have said to them that Ecclesiastes is one of the most important books that made them and convinced them of the truth of God. Because it's not about prophecy per se, although there's parts of it that are, but it's about looking at life for what it is and, and seeing that God has put certain principles in place in our heart, in our minds, that if we think about it, if we follow it through, we can come to the conclusion that Solomon did There's nothing better than to fear God, to know God, and to keep his commandments. Now, just to um, touch on the key themes, which are really important, and you've you've probably already spoken about this, and you're surely aware of them, and it's a good exercise to highlight them um, in in your scripture. Obviously, the idea of of the vanity of life, which occurs 38 times, and is 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 in that chapter... 1 verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and behold, all is vanity. So the idea of, um, of emptiness, of futility, of vapour, something which disappears quickly and leaves nothing behind, which gives us satisfaction. Um, and he uses the phrase at the end of verse 14, it's vexation of spirit. It's a classic It's a classic little phrase, this idea of vexation of spirit, and it literally means a grasping after the wind. So he says, uh, life can be a vexation of spirit. It's like there's no satisfaction to your emotions. You're continually grasping after something which is impossible to take hold of. So that idea of vanity. Uh, The theme of what is... What is the equation of life? That is, and he picks up these ideas of profit or gain. What profit is there in life? And he uses that phrase 10 times. Uh, and we see that in chapter 1, verse 3. What profit or advantage has a man of all his labour? At the end of the day, when you, mat, when you weigh up all your life, all the things that have happened, what do you get? Well, we know that without God, there is no satisfaction, there is no gain. And then that phrase, under the sun or under heaven, which is in that first verse, which we read tonight, the things under heaven. I suppose this is a catch-all phrase which describes life without knowing God and his purpose. So it's like Solomon lowered his, his gaze from heaven, where God is, and he just had a two-dimensional view of life, and he said, I'm going to explore life under the, under the sun, under the heaven. And I'm going to see if there's any satisfaction, any profit in the experiences of life in and of themselves. And so he lowered his sights and the sphere of his inquiries is in the main what a person can learn for himself from observing life. So Solomon put God to one side and asked, can I find satisfaction? Can I find meaning? Now we know when we get glimpses that Solomon understood that there were things above the sun, that is God. 
Uh, that's in chapter 7, verse 11. And chapter 11, verse 7 is his references to the things that are above the sun. Like when we lift up, look at God, obviously God is above the sun. We bring him into view and into picture. And there are those that see the sun, that see God, who see the light. And they are the wise ones. And they are the ones who fear God. And that is obviously another main theme, fearing God. It's, it's, it's probably the most important theme and the and most important conclusion that Solomon comes to is this idea of, of fearing, of reverence or awe of God. And we know that it is uh, the beginning of wisdom to understand and, and revere God. And we see, for example, chapter 3, verse 14, which we read tonight, we see how this works. God's ability, at the end of that chapter 3, the section we'll look at in a minute, God's ability to create and manage a cosmic timetable of events is something that makes us stand in awe of him and fear him. And so he says in verse 14, I know that whatever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it, that man should fear before him. So here's a good example where Solomon wisely is teaching us that um, you know, God's ability to control time, to, to create time, uh, when we're aware of that and when we acknowledge it, then it's, it's a beginning seed of wisdom and fear of God. That's chapter 3, verse 14. Now, obviously, last uh, class you looked at chapter 2 where Solomon really experimented with life and discovered that there was no satisfaction or profit to be gained in self-indulging pleasures. You know, uh, God created our ability to have pleasure uh, in many activities that are good and they are a gift from God. But when we pursue these relentlessly for their own ends and try and find satisfaction in them for their own ends, things like whether it's travel or entertainment or footy or shopping or food or partying or, or sex, we think there is no satisfaction in pursuing these things in and of themselves as Solomon taught us and discovered. It was a grasping of the wind. It was a vexation of spirit for him, as was the gathering of the material things, possessions, materialism, whether it was his gardens, his, his cars, his boats, his electrical goods, his clothes, whatever he was amounting to himself gave him no satisfaction either. Neither did power or wisdom or the freedom to do what he wanted to do and could do whenever he wanted. Imagine that. Solomon uh, could have the freedom and the power to do whatever he wanted. Although we see tonight he felt constrained by time. And that gave him no satisfaction. Or to be the wisest, most knowledgeable person on the planet only increased his frustration. And his end, he knew, was the same for those who were foolish. So he had everything, yet his life felt empty. And in fact, he got very depressed. 2 verse 17, 
These are strong words. I hated life. When Solomon became so self-absorbed, became so introspective uh, in pursuing pleasure and his own satisfaction from himself and from the things he could see around him, when he pursued that relentlessly, it in fact, he hated, he hated life. And in verse 18 it says, I hated all my labour. So he hated the effort that he was putting into it. And verse 20 said, Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair in all the labour which I took under the sun. So Solomon went into a very, very deep depression and despair because of the thing he was experimenting with. And it's a a tremendous lesson to us, I think, uh, about the life of Solomon is that too much introspection can lead to depression. When we think about ourselves, when we turn uh, the light onto inside ourselves and we uh, try and find satisfaction in ourselves and we ask too many questions and we're seeking too much satisfaction then we miss that which is outside of ourselves, which is God. And so that was the lesson. So where does chapter 3 sit in this framework? Um, well, I think, I think it carries on Solomon's exploration of the vanity of life under the sun. Well, it says that in verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the, under the heaven or under the sun is uh, a same kind of phrase or a similar phrase. So I think, uh, I might just say if anyone's got any questions, I don't know how they text them in or whatever, Josh, but feel free to throw any questions or comments our way. I'm sure Josh will be able to answer them. But I can't. <laughs> Um, so I think chapter 3 is about the frustration and the futility of our relationship to time. Uh, we are regulated by seasons and times. We're stuck in time from beginning to end. There's this thing, this concept of time. There's a beginning and an end, a place, time to be born, a time to die, and everything in between this. And there's a certain futility about this, about uh, these times and seasons which are uh, constraining us and which we're constrained by. And so he really hinted that in verse 9 and 10, what profit has anyone that worketh in wherever he laboureth, is his summary. I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. So our lack of control of events in our life, uh, we don't have control over when we're born or when we die, although that's a question for another time. Our lack of control of these times and seasons in our life is is frustrating and it's a futility. 
Uh, you think just even of the example of, of what we're going through now, um, God in his power can do something which throws everything that we know out of whack in terms of our plans, uh, the times and seasons that you know the, the earth was going to think it was going to have, well, we'll say that God is in control. So God is in control of time. God ordained time as we know it. He created the seasons, the days, the sun, the moon, uh, the universe, which designates the seasons. And that's truly beautiful, the way God has done this. But God is above and beyond this concept of time as we know it. He not only created time, but he also creates the events along the continuum of time. It says, obviously, in the scripture, he's without beginning and end. One day is as 1,000 years. God controls time and events. Acts 1 verse 7 says, God has set the time and the seasons by his own authority. Remember, the disciples asked when Jesus was going to set up the kingdom and he said, it is only for God to know. He has set the times and seasons. I mean, we've devised a system to measure time. It's called a clock, you know, and we're controlled by it. Um, but what is time? A lot of people discuss what time is. Um, but from God's point of view, it's an ongoing sequence of events taking place. There's the past, the present, and the, the potential future, and the future as God knows it. So we are bound by time and the inevitable events that time has on all people. And we are no different. All those events that uh, are catalogued for us in Ecclesiastes 3 happen to all people. And God created it like that. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. So there's 14 statements here which summarise our life and times. 14 is double the number 7. So maybe it's saying there's a, complete, a completeness about Solomon's uh, way he set this out. And these things summarise the basic human experiences and they are set opposite each other. Things like life and death, to plant, to pluck up what has been planted, to kill, to heal, to break down, to build, to weep, to laugh, to mourn, to dance. They are the opposites. And this is uh, a literary device, a way that Solomon was pretty much summarising everything in between. So when we say a man and a woman, all the men and women, or everything small and great, it's the same concept. It means everything in between those times and those things itself. So he says there is a time to be born and a time to die. Now we could look at these things in a number of ways. You could say um, these things are pretty self-explanatory. Uh, on a literal kind of plane, if you look at them and you go, 
Well, there is a time, God has set appointed times and seasons for the events of life. Like, you know, if I'm going to plant a vineyard, I don't do it in the middle of winter. I, I don't do it in the middle of summer, sorry, I do it in winter. Um, you know, you've got to take awareness of when is the right time to do things. Uh, there's a time to break down an old building, to, to pull the stones down and to scatter them and to sort them and to rebuild a new one. You know, there's a time for, uh, for seeking something which is lost and there's a time for not seeking it. So you can take these uh, statements as very literal and on face value about the, the things that are in all of our lives, the basic human experiences that we all have. Um, we could see them as, uh, as maybe uh, God saying, or we could look at them as saying these statements would apply to example to God's control over his nation Israel in a national level. And we could, we could look at that in a symbolic kind of way. Um, but I think for the purposes tonight, try and take these statements to yourself because that is what Solomon's uh, emphasis is. He's saying to us, look, there is a time in which you were born. There will be a time you will die. Unless, God willing, Jesus returns before we die. But there will be a time that we die. And there's events which happen in our life and you could cast your eye down that, that list and you will be able to relate those things to yourself. Okay? You'll be able to relate those things to yourself and to think about the meaning of those things. But at the end of the day, Solomon's main message is that we are constrained by these events. And the emphasis is on a time, 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 a time. The monotonous, the relentless march of time, which as we know in our own lives, leads eventually to the grave. And what profit is in this march of time, as Solomon looks at it? It causes him despair. And so he says there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. Well, when would be an appropriate time to kill? Well, in the Old Testament, under God's law, to kill an animal for a sacrifice, there might be a time where God ordained to kill someone as capital punishment, um, in my life, there's been a time that I've had to kill dogs or animals because they are sick. You know, there is an appropriate time in God's scheme of things and the way life works where there is a time to kill. But there's a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. As I said before, you know, there's a time to break something down, like an old building or something, renovating it, and a time to renovate it up. Time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, 
time to dance. Times of sadness, which will come in our life inevitably, of weeping and mourning because of the travail, the, the difficulties, the, the, the tests that will come upon us, but also a time to laugh and dance, as I've experienced this week with the, the birth of, of Tom and Gracie's little girl. You know, it's been a time of great joy. Can't say that I've danced. <laughs> I'm not a good dancer. And a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. Some people say that's a reference to um, spreading stones uh, over the ground to stop invading armies or to sort through stones uh, or, a, or a time to gather stones to build fences or to clear land. <coughs> a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Josh and I did the, um, the elbow touch tonight with COVID. A time to get or a time to seek and a time to stop seeking. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend or tear and a time to sow. Time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. So you can see there's many ways you can think about these these couplets of sayings, but they summarise the totality of our experiences in life and the constraint that we live in that God has created of time and events which to a large degree we don't have control of. And so he says, what profit, what gain is there in all these activities? says in verse 9, What profit or gain hath he that worketh in that wherewith he laboureth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work of God, work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. So Solomon observed the vanity uh, and labour that God had subjected him to and it says, he summarised that by saying, I saw that it was a heavy burden on the sons of men uh, that they are labouring under uh, and there seems to be no benefit or profit And he says in verse 11 that God hath made everything appropriate in its time, which God has. If you look at at nature and you look at uh, the things that God does, the way that he is working with time, he does things that are beautiful and appropriate in his time. That's God's time. And he also has set the world in their heart. So, the everything really takes us back to verse 1. See, it says, he, made, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose. 
So that takes us back to verse 1. To everything there is an appointed time that God made. Everything fits beautifully in its appropriate time. Now we're just starting to get a glimpse of where Solomon is going with this. And it's especially true when we see, when we understand, when we acknowledge God, when we fear him because of his control of time and his use of time, we can see that his timing is always perfect, is always appropriate and beautiful. And it's especially true when we acknowledge God and his work with his eternal time plan for us. And we'll see that Paul picks up on this, this verse and these verses in Romans chapter 8 shortly because he beautifully picks up on these themes about Everything that God does works good for those who know him, to fear him. And then he says, uh, God set the world in their heart. This is better translated. Um, God has put the eternity in their heart or the extension of time in our hearts. So God has put this idea of time beginning and and going on into our heart as part of our emotional makeup it literally means god has put the extension of time in our heart or the vanishing point in our heart as brother chris ryan pointed out to me god has put this vanishing point in our heart which is a really good definition of someone who's searching for eternity, isn't it? It's like, um, it's like you're on a road, that road you know, across the high plain or wherever the longest road, the straightest road you can think of and you can, you can see it going all the way to the horizon that way and it vanishes. You don't know what's beyond it and you can look back and look all the way back and it's vanishing and you're stuck in this time which only you can see which for you is your vanishing point. And God has put that in us that we would search what's beyond that, that we would want to know what's over the horizon. <coughs> and this is, um, this is what Paul, uh, Paul uses in Acts chapter 17. We'll look at Acts 17 verse 23. It's, um, it's where he explains that you know, God is in control of his time frame. Acts 17, verse 23, in his speech, he says, <coughs> to the people in Athens, he's trying to explain to these people who have no concept about you know, the God of Israel, who is in control of time, who, who manages time, who invented time, who put us in this time bubble like we're fish in a gold, a gold, gold bowl, goldfish bowl. You know, he says, uh, For as I passed by and beheld your devotion, de- devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And he hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell and all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So God hath determined the times before appointed, predetermined his time frame. That is what God can do. And the bounds of our existence in that time frame. That we should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him. So this is what what the preacher is saying to us. God God has put this concept of time and the events that happen and the seeking for the eternal, for what is beyond us, as all these Greeks and Athenians were doing, that we might find him. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your poets have have said. So this this is how... Paul picked up this idea and said, this is what God is trying to teach us. So this is where we've got to start lifting our eyes and, and having a vision of, of what God has in store for us at the vanishing point in our lives. And, and we don't want to get too introspective as Solomon did, we've got to start bringing God and his purpose for our lives into the picture. And this is the really awesome part because we know that God has the cosmic plan and we do well to understand it and we're blessed to understand it, to know, to know the mystery. God has given us the ability to look back and see his hand at work and to look forward. And we've been blessed to understand God's eternal purpose embedded in the promises that God made to Israel. That's the thing, isn't it? Like, ultimately, what gives us faith in God, what gives me faith in God, is when I think of his hand in the times and seasons that he appointed through the promises that he made to the fathers and that have been worked out in the nation of Israel. When you look back and you see God's hand at work with that people, as recorded to us in the scripture, we have a very precious thing, a very precious vision and hope. And so that's the amazing thing. Now we've got to go to Paul's take on Ecclesiastes in Romans 8. And you may probably have already been here, you probably most definitely have already been here because this is Paul's take on Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes 3 (coughs) really sums it up. So Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says this. 
So he says here, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So Paul got the idea that this present time we're in a time of suffering, of vanity, of vexation of spirit. (coughs) For the earnest expectation of creation says creature in the King James, but creation is a better translation. For the earnest expectation of creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by him who hath subjected it in hope. So what this is saying is God, in his ultimate wisdom, in his cosmic time plan, subjected our creation to vanity, to suffering, to meaninglessness unless we understand God. Now this is an amazing concept, isn't it? That God... uh, Before creation, he made Adam and Eve, sure, very good, and they sinned, but God always knew that they would use their free will to disobey him and bring suffering and vanity on this earth. God knew that and God accepted it and God uses our suffering, he uses the vanity of that we are in to bring us closer to him. Now, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? That we have free will and that all the experiences of our life now, like you think of Ecclesiastes 3, which we just read, you read through all those things. When you put God in that picture, and the Lord Jesus Christ, he went through the same stuff as us, when you put God in that picture, then life has a whole new meaning and end because it says it's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Out of this creation of suffering, of vanity, there's going to come people who have been forged in the vanity of life and who have seen it and come forth as sons of God with his character. And it's, and it's this idea of hope. You know, we're hoping for something else. God has put eternity into our hearts. We need hope. And that's why God allowed this creation and indeed subjected it to vanity that we might search for him and find him and get satisfaction in him. It says... The creation itself, verse 21, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
even we ourselves grind within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So that's, a, that's an amazing... Uh, commentary and exposition by the Apostle Paul on why we have been subjected to the suffering and the difficulties and the problems that we will face in this life. It's so that we have, we take hold of God, we bring God into our life, we bring God into all those circumstances and we fear, we, we feel the love of God, which he goes on to say in verse 29. It says here, verse 28, we know that all things, all the things of Ecclesiastes 3, all of life and in all those things, they work together for good to them that fear or love God. Fear and love are very closely aligned in the Old Testament. Like when Solomon talked about fearing God, he was really saying it's loving God. So here, here Paul is saying when we bring God into the picture, when we understand his work in our life, when we hook into his eternal time frame and see us as part of it, we see life differently. We view life differently. And we know that all things work together for good. For them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. God has an amazing timeline for his creation And he wants you and I to be part of it. And this is what Paul is saying. This is God's purpose from the beginning. God is calling you. Verse 29. Whom he did foreknow, God foreknew you. He also did predestinate or laid out a plan and purpose for you. And that purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son, to have the same qualities and characteristics of Jesus Christ. That, you, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. When we're in Christ, we are justified, and whom he justified them he also glorified what shall we say then to these things if God be for us who can be against us so this is the thing this is this is what Paul wants us to understand from Ecclesiastes and for us to take away God has always had a plan for you and I from the very beginning, in Jesus Christ. And he wants us to take hold of his plan and we're blessed to know his plan. 
And that's the purpose we have for living. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that God has called us to this. It says, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Freely give us satisfaction. The all, all the spiritual things that will provide satisfaction that God knows that we need to be truly satisfied. And so he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, birth or death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, any events, any circumstances, nor things to come, so time, anything present or anything to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the thing. This is stepping out of our time frame of what we see in Ecclesiastes 3 and going, you know what? God has an amazing time frame, amazing plan that is beyond our time that we can share in in Jesus Christ. And Ephesians chapter 1 is, is along the same lines. It's a beautiful passage. Ephesians chapter 1. Are we going for time, Josh? What is the time? Five minutes. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, have a look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So you can see Paul is really trying to uh, get us on board with him in, in God's choosing and calling us and plan for us in which we can see our life. Verse 9, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, in the fullness of times, when time comes to its conclusion, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So Jesus Christ is the, is the pinnacle of God's time, of the point of time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem us in the fullness of time. That The time was going to that point of the birth of Jesus. And at the fullness of time, when Jesus comes back, God is going to gather everything, all of us, together in him. And that will be an amazing thing. And this is the things that are above the sun. This is the vanishing point that we have been made known of and which God wants us to grasp and to see. 
But back in finishing off in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 12, I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. The better translation is, I know nothing better, there's nothing better that we should, uh, we should live and be joyful in our life because we can't control time. We can't control time and the seasons, they're in God's hands, but we can control our attitude, how we live life, and we can control our actions, do good. So that's what he says. Be grateful for the gift of life and enjoy the simple pleasures. Verse 14 reinforces God's complete control over time and events. I know that whatever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. God doeth it, that men should fear him. So we should respect God and stand in awe of him for his ability to control time and events. And we should leave our life in his hands. And verse 15 reinforces again that God can operate completely outside of our concept of time. God now knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. Whatever was is, whatever will be is, that's how it always is with God. Well, what are the take-home lessons from this brief journey? I think first lesson is not all about us. We'll only find purpose and fulfilment by not madly following our own desires and trying to wrangle and pursue and control time to our own ends. We must acknowledge God's power and timeline for our lives and work with him. Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I put before you life and death, choose life. Second take-home point, Submit to what God really wants for your destiny. Say yes to God's ground rules for your destiny because they're good plans, they're awesome plans. I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God, my times are in your hand. Imagine when we accept God's plan with this earth, we accept his plan for us, we put our life in his hands And that's what God wants because he wants to give us eternity. He wants to give us eternal life. It's a gift and he wants us to take hold of it. Obviously, the lesson is to make the best use of our time knowing that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. 1 Thessalonians 5 is clear on that. But finally, we must come to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the light of the, of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, and as we saw, God's plan finds its fulfilment and meaning in him, because he is the first son who demonstrated God's character beautifully, full of grace and truth, and he wants a whole family in him. And so when we uh, discover the wonder and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, vanity turns to fullness and satisfaction. Jesus talks about the fullness of life in him. 
about our work in him not being in vain, about his words being the words of eternal life. And if we believe in him, we shall not die. So the substance of life is found not in pleasure or things or man's wisdom, but in becoming children of God. Someone once said, without a purpose, life is motion without meaning, activity without direction, and events without reason. Without purpose, life is trivial, petty, and pointless. Well, we really have purpose when we gain the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said. He considered everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord and Saviour, for whom sake I have lost all things. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his sufferings so that somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is what gives life purpose, the fact that Jesus is resurrected from the dead and is the Son of God. So the time is short. We don't know how long we've got, any of us. It's the last times. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and you might have it to the full. If you've taken hold of Jesus Christ, keep holding on to him. Or if you haven't taken hold of Jesus Christ, he's trying to take hold of you. He's trying to apprehend you for salvation, for eternal life. And Jesus said, look, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. Thanks, Josh.